Hello, and welcome to this episode of Social Impact Now, a podcast for social change makers. The Social Impact Now podcast lifts up the work of social change makers like you who are powering a positive impact and equity in our communities. I'm your host, Elaine Rasmussen, and together we're going to drive social impact now. Let's get started. On this episode of Social Impact Now, we'll be talking to Susan Hamill. As a philosophy major who went to Wall Street, Susan Hamill translates between passionate social change makers and expert investors. Susan is the president and founder of Cogent Consulting Incorporated. This year, Susan is serving as the Minnesota Council on Foundations, executive in residence for impact investing and leading the charge to map the Twin Cities impact investing ecosystem. Both efforts were made possible through the support of Bush Foundation. In this unique position as executive in residence, Susan is connecting the many disparate initiatives happening both in the philanthropic and financial sectors. As a lifelong Minnesotan, Susan is dedicated to the entire community and brings professional experience from New York, Washington, D.C., and Chicago to our region. Welcome, Susan. We're so excited to have you. Thank you, Elaine. I'm excited to be here. We went to a event a few months ago, the U.S. Bank Impact Investing Symposium. You invited Erica Davies from Baltimore Community Foundation, Lance Knuckles from Community Reinvestment Fund, and Stephen Williams from Morgan Family Foundation, and me. Later that evening, you shared something very profound and quite frankly surprised me. Tell the audience what you said to me about your experience that day at the event. Thank you, Elaine. I'm, I'm happy to share my experience, you know, working in the financial industry. I'm no stranger to being the only something in the room, being the only woman, the only person from Minnesota. But my experience as kind of the only woman really pales in comparison to the feeling I had walking into the symposium, a large event, a big atrium filled with people. And I was accompanied by my four guests you mentioned, and they happened to be the only four highly visible people of color in the whole room. And I think there may have been one or two other people of color in the room. I believe one perhaps was helping with the event with catering and the other was a recipient of social services who was speaking. So really, you know, the four practitioners of impact investing, uh, people of color were my four guests. And I know this happens a lot here in Minneapolis. Um, You and Lance really didn't even blink. I I could tell this just must happen to you (laughs) constantly because it didn't phase you at all. You just took charge and found us a table. And But I felt almost like hit in the gut. And for the first time, I, I felt a glimpse of what it must be like on a daily or even hourly basis to always be that only person who looks like you in the room. Walk the audience like what happened and and what was your reaction? What were you reacting to? Well, it's not like in this day and age there's there's going to be any outright hostility. And in Minnesota, we're, we're polite people and we're, we're friendly people. We're Minnesota nice. So it's not like we walked into the room and everyone gasped or there was anything audible. Uh, but I do think heads turned. And the fact that I, I didn't just walk in with just you, Elaine, but I walked in with four <laughs> professional 
people of color. That just doesn't happen here in Minneapolis very often. In particular, in impact investing circles, as you and I and Erica have talked about many times, typically it's an all-white audience. There are more women involved in a typical financial gathering, financial industry gathering, but usually there's maybe one person of color, and it's usually either Lance or it's Gary Cunningham from Mita, and that's it. And usually that's all we see at these events. And so when I worked in with four people of color, obviously professionals in their own right, I think people really were wondering, who, who are these folks and why are they here and why is Susan with them? And <laughs> you know, it almost felt like I, I walked in with the cool kids, you know, was sitting at the cool kids table in, in high school or something. But I, I also felt like, why doesn't this happen more? I know there are great, talented people of color in finance and investment industry. I know there are asset holders of color. I know these people exist, and yet I don't see them. And so for me to walk in, the first thing I felt was, oh boy, I, I hope I did the right thing. I, I wondered if I had done the right thing. I wondered if, if this was somehow rude to you and to Lance. And I, I worried about how my, you're my guests. I worried about how you would feel. And I, I really appreciate your candor that not only were you fine, because you're so used to this, um, you also really want to be in places like that, because the only way we're going to change rooms like that is, is if we all are proactive about inviting our friends and colleagues into those kinds of rooms. Right. And I think for me, what was so stark about that room versus some other rooms that I've been in, the rooms are usually smaller. This was what, maybe 130, 150 people? Yes, it was a large gathering. It was huge. So it was all the more stark <laughs> that all of us <laughs> came in together. And then we all sat together. It was like we were Beyonce marching in formation. Like going I know, <laughs> it was waiting for lemonade, you know, let's do it. You know, I also think the... Um, the other thing I, I want to say is I think the people there had, and the organizers of the event have really good intentions. I think it was a good event. It was substantive. It was well done. It was very professional. They had great speakers who really know their stuff. So I actually don't think any of this was done intentionally. And one of the things I learned last year, and perhaps it's the result of the election, but even before that, is good intentions are no longer good enough. And that was my big take away from the day. We all can be nice and polite and and talk that we want to include, be inclusive, but the intention alone is not sufficient. As my grandmother used to say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would have liked your grandmother. <laughs> But this concept of wanting to do good, we really need to think deeper. I agree with you. It was a great event. The fact that they even asked people to invite other people, I thought was amazing because I have not seen that regularly happen in the impact investing space. You're encouraged to bring other people into the conversation. But as you and I have talked about, your network is only as broad as your network is. And if they're, if you're inviting four people and all of those people are very similar to you, then of course that room is going to look the way that it looks. 
products. And for me, I find it hard to believe while we're just down the road from the new U.S. Bank Stadium, where the football team is primarily African-American, that there wasn't somebody from the team, at least uh, as an asset (laughs) holder or their wealth manager who wasn't uh, at the at the convening. But this is part of the work that I think we just need to have these honest, transparent conversations about, hmm, I wonder what that was about and what do we want to do to make it different? I think sometimes when we have these conversations about doing good, that doesn't even enter. There's, there's this underlying assumption that because we're doing good, that we're not doing anything bad. I think you're right, Elaine. And I also think there's something special about you and about our relationship that somehow I was able to overcome my uh, native Minnesota knife uh, avoidance of conflict and let's not talk about anything unpleasant and let's certainly not broach controversial topics. I, I don't feel comfortable really having difficult conversations very often. I will fully admit I, I shy away from them. And yet something about your openness, um, I felt like I could share the experience that I had. And so I think it's also um, that you are willing to have these difficult conversations without judging uh, what we're saying and how, how we're saying and, and actually have a conversation that goes it goes both ways. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I try. <laughs> <laughs> what do we need to do in impact investing? Actually, let's take a step back before we go there. Let's talk about how do you define impact investing? Well, I like to use the definition from the World Economic Forum that the Global Investors Network, Impact Investors Network uses. So it is investing for both a financial return and a social return. It's doing that intentionally and you're measuring, we're measuring both the social and financial return. So what do you think has been the challenge around getting diversity and equity and inclusion in that space when, when we, the very essence of impact investing, it's a lot of the same people that are funding Uh, social justice work on their philanthropic side or they're interested in solar energy or environmental climate change, where do you think the disconnect is happening and what do you think we need to do to move the needle? I think we need to be proactive about reaching out to people involved in social justice, to people involved in sustainable agriculture or in alternative energy. I I think we need to be proactive about reaching out to people working in those realms to engage them in impact investing. I think also that because the second part of the word investing tends to be a conservative traditional field, people who are passionate about impact areas may not want to go into finance because they're not interested in the industry. I think the more we can talk about doing good and doing well within impact investing, that will make going into a financial career more interesting to people who have diverse interests. And I think we can broaden the tent that way. I 100% agree. And I appreciate you for being very intentional, inviting me to some of those places. And even though I think sometimes we're both uncomfortable, <laughs> we just, <laughs> you know, we just have to keep charging forward and keep having conversations and, and bringing people along. So I appreciate you for doing that. What's great about Minnesota is that we have such an active impact investing 
impacting community, so much so that Bush Foundation asked you to create a map of the landscape. Can you tell us about the ecosystem mapping project that you've been working on? Absolutely. It's an exciting project that we're doing with the Impact Hub here in Minneapolis, and it grew out of a community of practice here at the Impact Hub an impact investing community of practice with stakeholders who are active in the impact investing movement. And when we started talking as a community of practice, we first agreed on the definition of impact investing. We all knew that there were lots of disparate activity happening here, and we all wanted a visual way to represent the diversity and strength of the activity. So we decided on a map. And the great thing that happened is this community practice included Mandy Ellerton from the Bush Foundation. And she really was the one who said, a map is great. And then we also need uh, to convene the people who are in the map because the people are really important. The community engagement piece is really important. So we decided to map the ecosystem, include all parts of the ecosystem, So when you're thinking about impact investing, it's the sources of capital, and that's who we tend to think about, the people, the asset holders, so the foundations, the banks, uh, the private wealth managers, clients. But then there's the other side. There's the investees. There's the social entrepreneurs, the small businesses, the nonprofit. And many times these parts of the ecosystem just talk amongst themselves. And we decided to create a map that had all the parts of the ecosystem on it, both the sources of capital, the users of capital, and then the people in between the intermediaries who link one to the other. And including those three parts was critical. I think the third thing I'd say is we also set a a goal with the mapping project. The map is great, but it's not, it's a starting point. It's not an end point. And the end point is to grow and mainstream impact investing here in the Twin Cities. That's our goal, to activate more capital. And by setting that exciting visionary goal, everyone coalesced around making that happen. It's kind of a John F. Kennedy put a man on the moon kind of goal. Like, let's mainstream, let's do this, align assets with mission. And the map is, is a visual representation uh, that gets us started. And it's great because it's constantly evolving. It's not a static thing. And I think that that's beautiful. And for our listeners, definitely go to www.cogentconsulting.net and see the map. It's very interactive. And I know that in conversations I've had with other national groups and, or regional groups in other places, they're so in awe of this map. <laughs> they're all they're all Twitter-pated and, and just really excited to figure out what can they do. So where is the project now and what's next? We're excited to have mapped what is. Secondly, we moved into imagining what could be. First, we had to get our heads around what we've got. Then thinking about what do we want this ecosystem to be? So going back to your first question about the uh, experience at the symposium, we very deliberately in our second convening uh, in November We wanted our ecosystem to look different than the current impact investing communities. And it did. You you were there. Would you say it looked different than the event we attended in the afternoon? 
it was very 100%, 180 <laughs> degrees different than, than the event we went to later that afternoon. <laughs> right. You know, we're, we're so proud and so thankful that, that a variety of people are stepping up to co-create this ecosystem with us. And we were so thrilled to have leaders like... Um, uh, Ramon Leon from Latino Economic Development Center. We had Gary Cunningham who participated remotely by video and, and he also sent colleagues. Um, we, we had Nasibu from African Development Center and, and, and on and on, Bao Vang. And we have such diversity here in Minnesota and it was great to see it represented that morning um, when we had the, the big idea, imagination, um, inspiration convening. So now that we've, we've mapped what is, we've imagined what could be, the next thing is to move into action and create a shared agenda for moving forward together. And we're really excited to see how these big ideas that people have will take shape, identify the champions for them, and you know, appreciate that you've stepped up to lead. I, I think you're leading at least two of them. So I, thank you I for am. that. <laughs> So for other cities who might be interested in doing something similar, what would you suggest that they need to do to begin their own mapping? And what are advantages of doing a project like this for other cities? And what are maybe some words of caution or things that you learned along the way in going on doing this project? Well, I think a mapping project is great, but it certainly can't exist in a vacuum. And I think um, there are many, many mapping projects. You told me there's even a Map the Mappers group there are yes. so many mapping projects. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, this isn't an ivory tower. You know, like this, this project is meant to lead to action. So, so a map that leads to action is, can be very powerful. A map just done to have a map is really almost pointless. So I'd say start with a map, but have that be the starting point, not the end point. Because actually it's the convening that is the thing. It's the convening. It's the people involved. That's what really brings a map to life. And I think that's a very important part of these projects. Another important part for other communities is really to think about who should lead the, the mapping project. And I believe working with your local Impact Hub is a great place to start because anyone can join the Impact Hub. It's a community of purpose-driven individuals, professionals. There are no barriers to entry for the hub. So I think having the project be done with community, co-created with community, not not a top-down project, is also of a powerful, um, powerful way to do a mapping project. The third thing I'd say is volunteers are great, and Elaine, you've stepped up and you're volunteering, and there are many others who, on the community practice, who are volunteering and sharing their expertise. Uh, we also need resources to sustain these efforts. And the fact that the Bush Foundation was at the table from the beginning and agreed to step up and support this work and support the hub and reach out to um, expertise and really um, be serious about the project for a year, you know, a long span, I, I think those are also good lessons for other communities. So it sounds like there definitely needs to be an, an intentionality from the beginning when you're starting the map that the map isn't the end point and being clear about what the end point is and making sure that you're building an infrastructure and ju not just another project that will sit on the shelf somewhere or have some make a lot of people feel really good and then it sunsets and then that's the end of it that's what I'm hearing absolutely and you need somebody to lead the project who's got some expertise in this particular area 
the caution I'd say is going back to the, the diversity issue is that uh, creating a map and a community and an ecosystem with a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens is critical because otherwise we're leaving much talent uh, just on the sidelines. We're leaving, we're leaving talent out. And we need everyone's talent here to create a vibrant ecosystem. I would say that the, the diversity, equity, inclusion focus, though, won't happen by itself. Good intentions are not enough, like your grandmother says. It has to be... <laughs> has to be proactive, and Trista Harris, the president of the Minnesota Council Foundations, really taught me that, to just start by inviting um, your friends and colleagues who are people of color to, to be included at the beginning of these projects. So I'd say an, an intentional and proactive diversity, equity, and inclusion focus is important. It's not going to happen without the proactive reaching out. And then I think the last thing is what you just touched on, that the map is not the end point. Um, and we have to keep our eyes on the prize. The prize is to have more money flowing into mission-related projects. So we really have to move people to investment. That is really the goal. We have to keep our eyes on that. You mentioned the community of practice and the impact hub, and we also have a very robust philanthropic community here. However, they still have women, people of color, and Native American-led organizations are making up only a marginal percentage of impact investment. Why do you think that this is the case, or what have you heard from other impact investors uh, why this may be the case, and what do you think is missing from our ecosystem, uh, or what can be improved? To, to help alleviate that. I think there's a mismatch between what the sources of capital, what the investors want, and then the, the deal flow, if you will, available from the end users. One of the gaps we identified in the first part of the mapping project was the gap between investors seeking market rate capital deals and the social entrepreneurs really looking for uh, much more patient capital. In fact, in talking with one nonprofit social enterprise, she said memorably, what she'd really like is 100-year money at 0%. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and what are we all? But I do think there's a mismatch. So when you look at some of the businesses being led by women and people of color, some of them are startup businesses. Some of them have a strong social mission. Some of them uh, really need that patient capital and coming in not just with money, but also with other types of support and expertise, mentorship and other resources to support those organizations so that they're ready for an investment. Because the last thing an investor really should do or even wants to do is saddle a fledgling business with a whole bunch of debt that they can't pay back. So that no one succeeds in that scenario. So I think we need more patient capital that's willing to take risk, prudent risk, and willing to be there for the long haul and provide money, resources, network, all the things that a typical venture capitalist provides to their the companies that they're investing in. Right. And you had mentioned Trista Harris, and we've actually will be interviewing her as well on our podcast. I think she's so supportive of getting foundations to look at their, uh, not only their charitable giving 
side, but also on their endowment side of thinking outside of the box of where there are opportunities or where they need to be inviting folks to be part of that conversation for investment opportunities. But I think one of the things that I keep hearing over and over again, which goes along with what you just mentioned about the mismatch, is that the investor doesn't see the value in what the potential investee is creating. So I use the example of a halal market. If it's a halal market in a Muslim neighborhood and it would be the only halal market in a five or seven mile radius, that's a market that's actually going to be a really great chance of success because it doesn't have a lot of competition. But to even understand that having a halal market in a Muslim community is valuable and important, if you don't have that sort of cultural competence to have that understanding or even an inquiry to understand why that's important to the community, I find that that also interrupts deal flow and getting some social good, some dollars that are going to have a large social impact that could actually meet those market returns, if not in, in the short term, definitely in the longer term. You're so right, Elaine. And uh, Keisha Cash, who's a, a national leader in impact investing, she's launched a fund in Los Angeles to take advantage of just those kinds of market opportunities. And she's focused on African-American owned businesses. And she sees the great market potential, particularly with hair salons, barbershops and how successful they are and how much they cash flow and how they're good investments. But traditional investors may not see that. So part of it is absolutely, you're right, is kind of opening up eyes to market opportunities. And in fact, the, the Gates Foundation, their whole way they use their program-related investments or their, their kind of impact investments on, on the loan side is they actually look for these kind of overlooked markets and they look to make program-related investments to show that those markets can actually work and they can generate a return. So here's another thought, because I wonder if when we have this conversation about market rate returns. I always challenge wealth managers around that because traditionally market rate returns, we're talking about six, seven percent. Would you agree? I think so. Yeah. Um, for some foundations, it's got to be a little higher for them to maintain their grant making. Right. But when we think about what's really kind of based on the notion of long term, the uh, Wall Street longer term on average returns, but the world doesn't necessarily function like that anymore. And when you look at banks and banks aren't even paying a one percent <laughs> value. <laughs> you know, they're a rate of interest, what's really market rate? And so I always think about challenging them when I'm in those conversations about well, what are we really talking about market returns? Because very few things are offering you six or 7%, um, unless it's a tech company and those are basketball stars from the hood, you know, they're very far and few and in between. So are you looking for the shooting star or do you really want to do social good? Because doing social good may require you to think differently about what that needs to look like. What are some of your thoughts? I think you raise a really interesting point. I think the how different investors define market rate really depends on the use of their funds. So for small family foundations where they really only have a limited supply of capital and there isn't any more coming in, if they want to keep making grants, their investment capital is going to have to produce a return to pay for those grants. And I've heard anywhere from 8 to 10% to achieve their 5% and payout. 
there is a whole debate going on in foundation circles about this notion of perpetuity and of foundations existing, you know, in, into perpetuity. And some foundations are deciding to actually spend down their assets. I think it's a bit of a red herring, though. I, I think what you're saying when it comes to impact investments with that double bottom line of both social impact and financial return, investors can start to think about if there is an impact investment where my my financial return might be lower than I'd like, but the social impact is really high, then in a, in a way they are getting a return. It's a social return. And they know that then they're getting, um, making that bigger social impact. And they, so I think it's a way of thinking about uh, risk and return and about the kind of return that they're seeking. So my next question is, I think you in a roundabout way address this a little bit. We've talked about how impact investing is a way to invest for positive social environmental change and for a profit in short doing good and doing well. Today, it seems that the strategy is focused on doing social change with these competitive returns, as we just talked about. How do you see impact investing can be used to address some of the equity issues that we discussed earlier? I think impact investing can be a powerful tool to address these equity issues. For one thing, it changes the the traditional power dynamic that that happens many times when uh, well-intentioned people with assets want to do good, and they can have a charitable and think, which is great, but it becomes of a, of a, we'll kind of help you poor people. And impact investing just turns that on its head and it says, hey, we're investors, we're looking for good investments and you have opportunities here. Uh, so it's putting people more on an equal footing where either side, it, it's a win-win for folks, to use a cliche. So I think that it can change some of these long existing power dynamics. I also think impact investing can be a tool to address some of the disparities we see, income disparities, job disparities, because if you added up all of the grant capital we have in Minnesota, which uh, foundation assets, it's about $18.6 billion. And you could spend all that tomorrow. And what, what would you have to show for it in grant capital and in investment capital? You can create jobs. You can invest in companies. You can invest in minority-owned companies where they, they produce a lot of jobs. And these small businesses can be some of the best job producers out there. So I think impact investing can come in at a scale to address these equity issues in a profound way so that we move forward more quickly and it's more impact than grant capital alone or donations can do. So as it relates to individuals, impact investing as a wealth management tool is primarily targeted for accredited investors, those folks with a a combined income of $300,000 or more or a singular income of $200,000 or more. But what about unaccredited investors, which is probably the the 99% of us (laughs) or working class Mm -hmm. folks, can they be impact investors and how would you suggest they get started? Absolutely. Individuals can be involved in impact investing. There's an initiative here in Minneapolis called Ours to Own where anyone for 20 bucks can buy a note and the note will be from the Calvert Foundation and they've been doing this for decades so it's a pretty safe investment and you get a small return but you know 
know you're doing something to help affordable housing and small business development in the Twin Cities. There are ways to get involved. Um, there are more and more products that are being developed for individuals. The other thing is for people who work at a company that offers a retirement plan, a 401k of some kind, uh, they can ask their plan managers if they have an impact investing option, uh, at least a screened option that might be screened to invest in companies that are doing good work for what they call ESG, environmental social governance factors. So if there's a retirement plan, they might have money there. I think the other way is, is to actually think about putting your money to work locally um, and in a what I like to call a do-good bank. And if that's a great place to start. If you have a bank account, it can you can choose a bank that is actually making loans and investments in your own local community into affordable housing and small business development. And now a great example of that would be our own Sunrise Bank. To full disclosure, I'm, I'm on the community advisory board there, so I, I know them well. And But they're an example of a do-good bank. If you think about the Christmas movie, The Wonderful Life, and you think about the bank there and how they worked so hard to save that bank because they were investing in their own home for working people. So that's kind of what Sunrise does, and there are other banks like that. And then there are these wonderful community development financial institutions, which Sunrise is one of, and then there are many nonprofits here that qualify, and, and they're all good ways for people to get involved in impact investing. So let's go back to the beginning. How does a philosophy major make her way to Wall Street? <laughs> the two seem at odds, if not polar opposites. <laughs> Well, when I graduated from Carleton College with a degree in philosophy, of course, my mother asked, what in the world are you going to do with that? And while many of us go into uh, bartending (laughs) or law school, um, really what I learned from philosophy is to ask why. I I always ask why. Why are we doing something we're doing? What is the point? And I realized very quickly that while I had conceptual thinking skills, I lacked technical skills. And when I was 21 and 22, it was great to go to a job interview and say, I know how to think, but really I needed to have some tangible skills. I lucked into a great training program at Prudential in New York, and they they taught me the financial industry from nuts and bolts and all the way through to getting my CFA. It was a really fascinating place to be and really challenged my thinking and my quantitative ability, and it gave me some tangible skills. But at the end of uh, two, three, you know, years of doing corporate finance and work with Prudential, I kept asking why. Why are we lending money to these companies? And really, we were doing it so that the people who already had a ton of money could make a ton more. (laughs) (laughs) Sound familiar. (laughs) It's it's capitalism. I've got no problem with that. It just, it wasn't, you know, Elaine, it just wasn't my life calling. My, I really wanted to, corny as it sounds, I wanted to make the world a better place somehow, <laughs> some way. And, and that's when I found out about social investments. And actually, Prudential has been doing this since the 70s. Not many people know about that, but um, a lot of the insurance companies have been doing this for a long, long time. And really that do good, do well, and seeing how capital could make such a big difference.
difference invested versus just a donation. So I kept asking the why questions. I landed in social investments and I've been there ever since and and love trying to activate that kind of capital for good and, and be that kind of bridge builder between the financial investment types and the folks, uh, like you mentioned earlier, working in social justice, environmental causes, affordable housing, et cetera. Well, we're glad to have you. Well, you're such a powerful woman warrior. So we're so grateful that <laughs> you landed where you landed because we, we need you and we need, need more folks like you. So I have only one last question. And I want to ask you, what are your 2017 impact investing predictions? We're going to be asking this question to all of our guests. And then at the end of the year, we're going to do a show to see how we did. I love that idea. And uh, I'd be happy to come back on your show to see how I did. My first prediction is that 2017, this is our year. This is the year that capital is going to come off the sidelines and it's going to be invested in alignment with mission. We're, We're going to see more and more of these ideas that are being generated in the ecosystem just bear, become a beautiful garden with many flowers and even some trees growing. So <laughs> foundations who've been doing this for a while, like Northwest Area Foundation and McKnight Foundation, joined by family foundations like the Sundance Family Foundation. This is our year. We're going to see this really start to happen. So that's my first prediction. And secondly, I also predict that the corporations are going to come to the table this year. And they may not come through the traditional route. It may be through their supply chains. It may be through human resources. It may be through their corporate foundations. But corporations who want to attract and retain the best talent, who care a lot about mission, the corporations who want to make sure their supply chain is ethical and their good labor practices throughout, um, the corporations that look at environmental friendly policies. These are the corporations that are going to be successful in the future and they're going to start coming to the table for impact investing. Then I guess my third, if I can, can I have three? Can I have you three can have three. You can have as many as you like. <laughs> uh, my third one is that it's also that the high net worth individuals, the clients of wealth advisors like U.S. Bank and other wealth, high wealth advisors, the accredited investors are going to come to the table. And right now they, they may not know what impact investing is, that it's an option for them. They may have heard a little bit about it, but they're going to start being involved now in the ecosystem and, and the garden's going to get bigger and broader and they're going to start planting their own seeds. And when they get involved, it's exciting because individuals can move quickly. Yes. They don't have a lot of bureaucracy. So I know that you and I, our work is going to be pushing that along and nurturing that and watering that. So hopefully when, when we come back at the end of the year, <laughs> we're going to have some great lines that we can point to that uh, speak to these predictions coming true. I'm so glad to have had you on. We always have great conversations. It was great to actually share this with other people and have a window into our conversation. So thank you so much, Susan Hamill, for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Elaine. My pleasure. And for those of you listening, you can follow Susan on Twitter at Susan underscore Hamill. That's H-A-M-M-E-L. And you can check out her website. Find her at www www.cogentconsulting.net that's c-o-g-e-n-t consulting.net thank you again susan and we'll see you next time you can head over to itunes now and give us a five-star rating and listen to the next episode you've been listening to elaine rasmussen on social impact now a podcast for social change makers